Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to Axioms of Liberty, where I read some of the most prolific philosophical writers of our era in order to help you gain a deeper understanding of what freedom can mean for you and your family and how it applies to your life. And we begin again with the Voluntarist Handbook, Chapter 39, The Right-Wing Critique of the Police State by Lilwell H. Rockwell. The American right has held a long, casual view toward police power, viewing it as the thin blue line that stands between freedom and chaos. While it is true that law itself is critical to freedom and police can defend rights of life and property, it does not follow that any tax-paid fellow-bearing official arms and sporting jackboots is on the side of good. Every government regulation and tax is ultimately backed by police power, so free market advocates have every reason to be as suspicious of socialist-style police power as anyone else on the left. Uncritical attitudes toward the police lead, in the end, to the support of the police state, and to those who doubt that, I would invite them to have a look at the U.S.-backed regime in Iraq, which has been enforcing martial law since the invasion. Even while most conservatives have been glad to believe that these methods constitute steps towards freedom, the problem of police power is hitting Americans very close to home. It is the police, much militarized and federalized, that are charged with enforcing the on-again, off-again states of emergency that characterize American civilian life. It is the police that confiscated guns from New Orleans residents during the flood, kept residents away from their homes, refused to let the kids go home in the Alabama tornado last month, and will be the enforcers of the curfews, the checkpoints, the speech controls that the politicians want during the next national emergency. If we want to see the way the police power could treat U.S. citizens, Look carefully at how the U.S. troops in Iraq are treating the civilians there, or how prisoners in Guantanamo Bay are treated. A related problem with the conservative view toward law and justice concerns the issue of prisons. The United States now incarcerates 730 people per 100,000, which means that the U.S. leads the world in the number of people it keeps in jails. We have vaulted ahead of Russia in this regard. Building and maintaining jails is a leading expense by government at all levels. We lock up citizens at rates as high as eight times as the rest of the industrialized world. Is it because we have more crime? No. You are more likely to be burglarized in London and Sydney than in New York or LA. Is this precisely because we jail so many people? Apparently not. Crime explains about 12% of the prison rise, while changes in sentencing practices, mostly for drug-related offenses, account for 88%. Overall, spending on prisons, police, and other items related to justice is completely out of control. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, in the 20 years ending in 2003, Prison spending has soared 423%, judicial spending is up 321%, 
and the police spending shot up 241%. When current data becomes available, I think we will be in for a shock, with total spending around a quarter of a trillion dollars per year. And what do we get for it? More justice? More safety? Better protection? Nope. We are buying the chains for our own slavery. We might think of prisons as a miniature socialist societies where government is in full control. For that reason, they are a complete failure for everyone but those who get the contracts to build the jails and those who work in them. Many inmates are there for drug offenses supposedly being punished for that behavior. But meanwhile, drug markets thrive in prison. If that isn't the very definition of a failure, I don't know what is. In prison, nothing takes place outside of the government's purview. The people therein are wholly and completely controlled by state managers, which means that they have no value. And yet, it is a place of monstrous chaos, abuse, and corruption. Is it any wonder that people coming out of prison are no better off than before they went in, or oftentimes even worse or scarred for life? In the U.S. prison and justice system, there is no emphasis at all on the idea of restitution, which is not only an important part of the idea of justice, but truly is very essence. What justice is achieved by robbing the victim again to pay for the victimizer's total dehumanization? As Rothbard writes, The victim not only loses his money, but pays more money besides for the dubious thrill of catching, convicting, and then supporting the criminal. The criminal is still enslaved, but not to the good purpose of recompensating his victim. Free market advocates have long put up with jails on the grounds that the state needs to maintain a monopoly on justice. But where in the world is the justice here? How many jails are too many? How many prisoners must there be before the government has overreached? We hear virtually nothing from this problem from conservatives. Far from it. We hear only the celebration of the expansion of the prison socialism, as if the application of ever more force were capable of solving any social problem. And that's the end of chapter 39. I really like this one. I like the example of if there ever was an example of government's complete and utter failure of their ideal that they can control every aspect of society, a great microcosm for what that could look like and be like is a prison. The state controls 100% of everything that comes in and out of those buildings. And yet, there is still ways that the things that they do not want, the quote-unquote contraband that is considered illegal, still finds its way in. People that work there still end up getting corrupted and succumbing to the economic decisions because that's essentially what it is. It is a trade-off between keeping their job or making more money to help facilitate 
the smuggling of these contraband items into the state prisons. Everybody's equal, everybody wears the same thing, and yet what do we see? Nobody has anything more than anybody else. Everybody has the same bed, the same food schedules, the same workout schedules, the same outside time, and yet people still treat each other differently. Whites get with whites, blacks get with blacks, the Mexicans get with the Mexicans. There's still this tribalism within a scenario in which the government controls every facet of their lives to make everybody equal as every other individual within that system. And yet we still see these problems. And it's even more dangerous, I would say, in that scenario. It's just, it's just really such a good microcosm for what that kind of society would be like and how much of an utter, complete fucking failure it is. That's the worst part because all we end up doing is needing more and more and more funding for these institutions. There's never not a year that they don't spend every dime that they are allotted by the federal government in order to ask for more budget for the next one. Definitely like this article. It was definitely good for how short it is. Anyway, on to the next one. Chapter 40. The only police reform that matters by Jason Brennan. Keith Knight. I want to talk about your most recent work, a book called When All Else Fails, The Ethics of Resistance to State Injustice. What is the moral parody thesis? Jason Brennan. The moral party thesis is the claim that the conditions under which you are able to resist injustice conducted by a government official, even when acting in the capacity of their office, are exactly the same as the conditions under which you are allowed to resist me. So basically, there's one set of rules of self-defense and one set of rules for when you're allowed to use violence or deceit or other things to defend other people from injustice. And that same set of rules applies to government agents as it does to defendants against civilians. They are one and the same. So the reverse of this thesis, or the thing I am arguing against, is what you might call the special immunity thesis, which says that government agents, either when they're working within their office or not, or maybe just democratic government agents, but some government agents enjoy a special kind of immunity against resistance and actions to resist their injustice. So like, if I were to try to kill you right now just for the hell of it because I'm having a bad day and I'm misbehaving, Everyone thinks that you're allowed to defend yourself against me and that other people will be allowed to intervene to defend you against me. But most people think that if a police officer has a bad day and starts beating the crap out of someone, that you just have to stop and let them do it. You can complain about it later. You can file. Maybe there should be some sort of formal investigation. But you're not permitted to intervene violently. You're not permitted to lie to the government. You're not permitted to resist them except in really extreme circumstances. And so the book, When All Else Fails. The simple claim is, just whatever you can do in self-defense or defense of others against anything 
that I, Jay Brennan, do, you can do against the U.S. president. And that's the end of the article. Nice, super short, but simple. It is, we have this societal fear. I don't know if it's fear. Maybe it's, I don't know. What, what would you guys think it would be called? What What is that? That when, like, take the George Floyd nonsense going on. Like, obviously they didn't kill him because we have evidence that, you know, came out from the medical examiners that he was actually really freaking high and had a really high amount of drugs within his system and he inevitably succumbed to that drug cocktail mixture that he had. But the police were using somewhat of an excessive type of force. But yet the individuals just stood slack jaw on the side of the street and could only use their video cameras to videotape the entire ordeal because if anybody had tried to run up and intervene for them using the set of excessive force, they would been have met with equal or if not more excessive force up into death by being shot by the other cops that were in that scenario, which is, it's just that whole system. That is just, it's a fucked up system. What part of that system that makes that okay? Like the, that's, that's literally the definition of rules for thee, but not for me. None of that makes any sense. I don't know what the right answer for that is. But I mean, he is proposing that any up up, up until any and nobody is exempt from that. You should be able to defend yourself up into even up into the president. If the president is the one coming to your house and trying to enact these things, that you should be able to defend yourself. And that is definitely a position I would say is a fair one. All right, next one, chapter forty-one. Welfare Before the Welfare State Joshua Fulton Many people think life without the welfare state would be utter chaos. In their minds, nobody would help support the less fortunate, and there would always be riots in the streets. Little do they know that people found innovative ways of supporting each other before the welfare state existed. One of the most important of these ways was the Mutual Aid Society. Mutual Aid, also known as fraternalism, refers to social organizations that gathered dues and paid benefits to members facing hardship. According to David Bieto, from Mutual Aid to the Welfare State, there was a great stigma attached to accepting government aid or private charity during the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Mutual aid, on the other hand, did not carry the same stigma. It was based on reciprocity. Today's mutual aid recipient could be tomorrow's donor and vice versa. Mutual aid was particularly popular among the poor and the working class. For instance, in New York City in 1909, 40% of families earning less than $1,000 a year little more than the living wage, had members who were in mutual aid societies. Ethnicity, however, was an even greater predictor of mutual aid membership than income. The new immigrants, such as Germans, Bohemians, and Russians, many of whom were Jews, participated in mutual aid societies 
at approximately twice the rate of native whites and six times the rate of the Irish. This may have been due, due to new immigrants' needs for an enhanced social safety net. By the 1920s, at least one out of every three males was a member of a mutual aid society. Members of societies carried over $9 billion worth of life insurance by 1920. During the same period, lodges dominated the field of health insurance. Numerous lodges offered unemployment benefits. Some black fraternal lodges, taking note of the sporadic nature of African-American employment at the time, allowed members to receive unemployment benefits even if they were up to six months behind in dues. Under Lodge Medicine, the price for health care was low. Members typically paid $2, about a day's wage, to have yearly access to a doctor's care. Minor surgery was frequently included with this fee. Non-Lodge members typically paid about $2 every doctor visit during this same time period. Low prices for lodges did not, however, necessarily translate to low quality. The Independent Order of Foresters, one of the largest mutual aid societies, frequently touted that the mortality rate of its members was 6.66 per thousand, much lower than the 9.3 per thousand for the general population. Lodges also had incentives to keep costs down. For instance, the Ladies' Friends of Faith Benevolent Association, a black female society, would pay members taken ill $2 a week if they saw the lodge doctor and 3 if they didn't. A visiting committee also checked on the claimant to guard against false claims. Members who failed to visit the claimant were fined $1. Mutual aid societies also enforced moral codes. In 1892, the Connecticut Bureau of Labor Statistics found that societies followed the invariable rule of denying benefits for any sickness or other disability originating from intemperance, vicious, or even immoral conduct. Many societies refused to pay benefits for an injury sustained in the participation of a riot. Some lodges even denied membership to people who manufactured explosives or even played professional football. Many mutual aid societies branched out and founded their own hospitals and sanitariums. The Securities Benefit Association, or SBA, charged $21 for an 11-day stay at their hospital in Kansas, while the average at 100 hospitals was 72. Again, quality was not necessarily sacrificed for price. At the SBA's sanitarium, the mortality rate was 4.5%, while the historical average for sanitariums was about 25. This is especially impressive considering that 30 to 40% of all cases admitted to the SBA's sanitarium were advanced. A large number of African American societies also created their own hospitals. In the early 20th century, it was not a given that African Americans would be admitted into many hospitals. If they were, they frequently had to face such indignities as being forced to bring their own eating utensils, 
sheets, and toothbrushes, and to pay for a black nurse if none was on staff. When the Knights and Daughters of Tabor in Mississippi, a black fraternal society, with a reach across, only a few counties opened Taborian Hospital in 1942, membership nearly doubled in three years to 47,000. Mutual Aid Societies also founded 71 orphanages between 1890 and 1922, almost all without any government subsidy. Perhaps the largest of these was Mooseheart, founded by the Loyal Order of the Moose in 1913. Hundreds of children lived there at a time. It had a student newspaper, two debate teams, three theatrical organizations, and even a small radio station. The success of Mooseheart alumni was remarkable. Alumni were four times more likely than the general population to have attended institutions of higher learning. Male alumni earned 71% more than the national average, and female alumni earned 63% more. Of course, with so many services being supplied by mutual aid, many groups had reason to lobby government for its destruction. The first major blow against fraternalism occurred when the American Medical Association gained control of the licensing of medical schools. In 1912, a number of state medical boards formed the Federation of State Medical Boards, which accepted the AMA ratings of medical schools as authoritative. The AMA quickly rated many schools as unacceptable. Consequently, the number of medical schools in America dropped from 166 in 1904 to just 81 in 1918, almost a 51% drop. The increased price of medical services made it impractical for many lodges to retain the services of a doctor. Medical boards also threatened many doctors with being stripped of their licenses if they practiced at the lodges. The next most damaging piece of legislation was the Mobile Law. The Mobile Law required that mutual aid societies show a gradual improvement in reserves. Until this time, societies had tended to keep low reserves in order to pay the maximum benefits possible to all members. High reserve requirements made it difficult for societies to undercut traditional insurance companies. The mobile law also required a doctor's examination for all lodge members and forbade all speculative enterprises, such as the extension of credit to members. By 1919, the mobile law had been enacted in 40 states. The requirement that all members undergo a medical examination effectively barred mutual aid societies from the growing group insurance market. Group insurance is insurance offered to a large group of people, such as all the employees at a company without a medical examination. From 1915 to 1920, the number of people insured under group policies rose from 99,000 to 1.6 million. Some lodges, such as the Arkansas Grand Lodge of the Ancient Order of Workmen, 
tried to get around the medical examination requirement by offering group insurance at a higher price than normal lodge coverage, but this put them at a complete competitive disadvantage. Mutual aid was hindered in other ways. Lodges were prohibited from providing coverage for children. This opened the door for commercial companies to offer industrial policies in which children's coverage was standard. The number of industrial policies rose from 1.4 million in 1900 to 7.1 million in 1920. By 1925, industrial policies surpassed the number of fraternal policies. Group medical insurance also eventually became tax deductible, while private plans such as those purchased through a lodge did not. Fraternal hospitals also came under attack. During the 1960s, the regulation of hospitals increased. Taborian Hospital in Mississippi was cited for inadequate storage and bed space, failure to install doors that could swing in either direction, and excessive reliance on uncertified personnel. A state hospital regulator said of the Taborian Hospital, We are constantly told that you do not have the funds to do these things, make improvements, yet, if you are to operate a hospital, something has to be done to meet the minimum standards of operation for Mississippi hospitals. The Hill-Burton Hospital Construction Act of 1946 also hurt many fraternal hospitals, especially black hospitals. The act required that hospitals receiving federal funds use a portion for indigent care and that services be offered without discrimination on account of race, creed, or color. Although this enabled many blacks to get free service at hospitals previously unavailable to them, it also cut into the membership base for black fraternal hospitals. Additionally, some hospitals, such as Taborian Hospital and the Friendship Clinic in Mississippi, received no funds, while their nearby competitors received millions. The advent of Medicare also hastened the decline of fraternal hospitals. MIT economist Amy Finkelstein estimated that Medicare drove a 28% increase in hospital spending between 1965 and 1970 by encouraging hospitals to adopt a new medical technologies. Smaller hospitals, such as many fraternal hospitals, were not able to adopt new technologies as quickly as larger hospitals and were driven out of the market, another finding supported by Finkelstein. Some fraternal societies escaped the attack of the state by converting into traditional insurance corporations. Both Prudential and Metropolitan Life have their origins in fraternalism. Many societies, however, simply just died off. Although millions of Americans are still members of fraternal societies such as the Masons or Odd Fellows, the organizations no longer have the importance in society that they once did. The history of fraternalism serves as a reminder of the power of human cooperation in a free society. And that's the end of the article. That is definitely one that I actually recently got into a spat about with individuals that they, you know, believe that uh, the high prices of health insurance is caused by capitalism. 
and that mutual aid wasn't a thing, that mutual aid didn't serve to serve enough people, that they're the only reason why we have the glorious medical establishment that we have currently today is because of the government. But at the same time, they say that the, 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 the like, think about it. They just contradicted themselves. Hospitals have failed because capitalism made them too expensive, but yet we have so much technology in hospitals that we have more technology today than we've ever had in the entire existence of humanity. Like, okay, which is it? Capitalism failed because it's too, the prices are too high, or capitalism succeeded because the technology is in all of these hospitals at the same time? Like, what? Um, as far as I know, government moves... 70 cents of every dollar within the medical industry currently so if anything government is 70% at fault for the failures of the entire medical industry and I'm pretty sure you can google that I'm pretty sure that's that's properly right I guarantee. let me let me check let me check well I looked around I couldn't find anything conclusive about this I've got US national health expenditure in 2021 was 4.2 trillion USD, but it doesn't say if that's actually government funded. I've looked in numerous different uh, tabs of what would actually give me a better look at this. I've also got the actual Fed, the total revenue for hall establishments. Uh, so for Q4 of 2021, says 339175 but this is actually in millions of dollars at that time so right so 339175 would equal 339175 million so add another what six zeros to that so that's what 339 billion in just hospitals alone that's total revenue of all establishment or is that 339 billion trillion no can't be a trillion I don't know. This, these charts are so ambiguous because they can't just give you the exact number. They got to give you, you know, 339,175 millions of dollars. Like what? None of it makes sense. But uh, it's still a lot of fucking money. It's absolutely ridiculous. Let's see. Yeah. Because I can't even change the the types of units. Because what millions of dollars changes in the millions of dollars. Yeah, doesn't show the changes in millions of dollars. Yeah, see, that doesn't make any sense either. You can't put it just straight normal number. Like, because uh, they want to always want to change the date to make it look like it's a certain way when it's not or make it not look as bad as it really is but uh yeah the government moves a lot of money in healthcare so it's pretty bad but uh hope you guys enjoyed this articles these articles and uh thanks everybody for uh tuning in let me uh get on fountain really quick and check to see if any new boosts have came in just got a boost from Darth Coin on episode 45 says another great reading a boost from Joel of 316 sats a couple times on episode 44 
Kepford boosted 95 sats on Praxeology by Knutz von Holm. And Private Slippers gave the boost of 950 on episode 43. Says, great episode. Thanks, TK. Uh, another boost from Darth Coin on chapter 43, or episode 43, excuse me. Says, another very good and interesting chapter. Thank you for reading. And that looks to be all the new boosts. More boosts from Joel on episode 39, 40, and 41. And that is it. That is all the new boosts. Thanks for the guys who uh, sent some boosts. Get a shout out on the show. Until next week, boys and girls.